This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is Eric McNulty, and welcome to Leader ReadyCast. 2020 was the year we saw it all, and the year we didn't see it all coming. From alphabet-exhausting Atlantic storms, to record wildfires, to the solar wind cyber breach, to the drawn-out conclusion to the U.S. presidential election, to the global pandemic, turbulent is an understated description of our times. To lead well today, you need a multifaceted and nuanced understanding of risk. And to help us with that, I'm joined today by Eric Jones. Eric is Global Manager of Business Risk Consulting at FM Global, a mutual insurance company solely focused on property risk management and resilience. Eric Jones, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Hey, thank you, Eric. I'm glad to be here. Good. The pleasure to have you. Now, let's, let's start with the big picture. I mean, is the world actually getting riskier in your view, or is it more that we're facing some novel risks like the pandemic that we that just make it appear that way? Right. You know, having been in this business for a good while now, for coming up on two decades now, I can't seem to remember a time where we went where I didn't feel like risk was increasing year over year, but it does feel like that's accelerating over the last few years. And, you know, when you talk about novel risks like the pandemic, you know, that's, it really depends on who you're talking to about that, because a lot of the risks that have hit us, you know, over the last year to five years, for that matter, um, aren't necessarily all that novel, really, to, to at least some people. You know, the, the risk of a pandemic has been one that a lot of people have well understood. It's just a lot of times people, I think, confuse, you know, low probability with it'll never happen. And what we have learned over the years is low probability events, worst case scenarios, those things do happen and they're happening with more and more frequency now. And I've been giving this some thought as to why is that? And I think it's, there's some fundamental changes that are occurring that result in there being more and more of these novel type events. When you think about uh, increasing climate risk, technology shifts, and there's a whole lot to unpack within the technology realm. Uh, but in- increased globalization, uh, cultural and political shifts that are occurring. There's a lot of fundamental things that's causing these more one-off type events. You know, for example, uh, with uh, the pandemic risk, I can't help but think that you know increased globalization over the past two or three decades has increased the risk that a pandemic would occur. And most experts will tell you that look this was going to happen. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. Uh, You know, I grew up, you know, just talking a little bit from a personal standpoint, I grew up in Southeast Texas on the Gulf Coast. And my family's lived down there for close to 40 years. And I never really remember there being a major event down there over for that 40 year period. You know, we had some close calls, but you know, nothing all that noteworthy. And in the last 15 years, we've had three major storms that have just pretty much demolished my hometown. So 
you can't tell me that, you know, there is something fundamental occurring there. What's well, really good points you raised because I think you're right. I think quite a number of these novel events actually could fall into the realm of predictable surprises because they were on someone's radar. They just weren't on everyone's radar. And, and we do have that uh, seemingly uh, endur enduring ability to think it may happen, but it, it just won't happen this year or next year. And I'll, I'll get away with it. <laughs> right, um, exactly. I, and you're right, but you're right. These, these seem to be coming closer together more, more frequently. So it's harder to, to take that defense. So that leads me to ask you then, you know, you help your clients think about these risks and figure out which ones to, to how to prepare for them and, and what to do about them. So how do you think about this risk environment? I mean, what sort of the mindset one needs to, to navigate and lead through a time when worst, these worst case scenarios do tend to be, do seem to be coming more frequently? Yeah. You know, it just comes down to understanding your business, understanding what your situation is, and understanding risk in a very specific way. There are a lot of broad categories of risk, but you have to look at how those broad categories actually fit your organization. So you've got to look at it on, you know, from kind of a business driver standpoint. What are the key things that drive our business? And obviously, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about today, I'm, I'm coming at from a from a business standpoint, because that's, you know, that those are the, the clients that I work with. We work with about a third of the Fortune 1000 um, that, that we insure. So that's, that's the mindset that I'm coming from. And we help them understand their risks in a very specific way, because that's kind of how our business works. And that's how our clients, uh, that's how they think. That's what they want to know. So there's two sides of that. There's the engineering side of that risk of understanding things from kind of the, the technical standpoint uh, and, and what can go wrong and what the physical threats are. Uh, but then there's also the, the quantification side of things and also the understanding what happens, you know, after the event. What can you do from a resilience standpoint uh, to prevent those things from happening? Or if they do happen, what can you do to mitigate the impact uh, of that? And we believe in terms of how to think about risk, it also helps to, to think about it in terms of a really robust risk quantification framework. And that's a lot of the work that we do is helping clients quantify risk from a financial standpoint. And by doing that, you're, you're then creating a story that can resonate really strongly with the C-suite. You know, you've got to speak the language of the executives for an organization in order to be able to uh, undertake risk management efforts and truly make an impact with improving resilience and be able to determine what is the best strategy that we can deploy to effectively mitigate that risk from a, from a financial perspective. So, you know, you need to have a robust risk quantification framework and match that up with a solid and compelling engineering related story to understand the risk. And then you can present that holistically to the C-suite. And when you do that, you do that effectively, you speak the language of the C-suite, you can really make some progress with improving organizational resilience. Well, it's good to hear it. It is that business perspective. One, one of the reasons I wanted you to come on the show, because even though we at the MPLI work a lot with the with the public sector, in the work we've done with the private sector, it is there I've I've encountered the most sophisticated understanding of risks, uh, both financial and non-financial, uh, and really being able to, to dig down into sort of what what are the real risks? What do we need to do about them? 
Uh, and it, t- talk a bit about how you you quantify everything. I think that can be a bit daunting sometimes. Some some maybe e- seem relatively easy. Other risks must take a, f- a fair amount of quantitative sophistication to be able to uh, to put into numbers. How do you guys go about that? Well, that's a great question, and it, it's it's not always an easy thing to do. It, it does take time, but it's also not impossible either. The first thing you really need to do is break your business down into some manageable pieces first and foremost. And one of the things that we try to help clients with and, and that, that really seems to make a difference is connecting the links of kind of the risk management process because all, cl- all companies, you have to report something to your insurance organization in terms of uh, insurable values. So make that a very useful process, make that a very solid baseline to then understand what is your exposures, what is the actual risk that uh, that exists at your different facilities. You know, to do that, we go through kind of a dependency mapping approach where we look at just what is that annual contribution margin or variable margin that a business produces. And that's typically what your insured value is that you report, but you break that down at kind of an entity level, and then you understand all of the key business drivers that that support that and start to determine what level of support, what is kind of the percentage support uh, that underpins each one of those variable margin streams. And that begins to paint the picture of what's actually exposed within your business. Then it's a matter of going into the organization and talking to people, talking across organizational functions and understanding how can we mitigate this risk uh, if this ter- if this type of event occurs, what are the mitigation potential options that exist? And then quantifying those things and bringing that down to kind of a net exposure number. Uh, and then also factoring in potential for longer term market share losses. You know, if you're if you're not operating, you know, it's not just, you know, what's the loss up to the point that your operations are, are back in place. But then what does your customer base look like? How much of your customer base is potentially eroded? How long would it take to get those those companies or those customers back? And then what's the financial impact of that? So there's various ways that we go about putting numbers to all of that uh, and can create a pretty compelling financial story uh, by, by doing so. So listening to what you just described, I, I would love to facilitate a conversation sometime between the local and state emergency managers and the large corporations in their, juris, their geographical jurisdiction, just to share how they perceive risk and what they're seeing. Because as you said, if the companies have thought about these things, that, re, that reflects back to jobs, it reflects back to the viability of communities. And even though those public and private sector folks may be worrying about different property, uh, it's the people who work and live in those properties that uh, are going to be affected by any kind of disaster like that. And it would be, I think, a really interesting conversation. But that's that's for another day. Sure. Um, you also mentioned resilience. And I know your firm recently completed a global resilience index. What was that all about and what did you find? Well, this is something that we started back in 2016 that we update on uh, an annual basis. And the resilience index is, um, it's a data-driven, um, data-driven model that ranks 130 countries using uh, a lot of different data sources. And it, it utilizes three sort of broad categories as key drivers of resilience. So you've got Uh, And within each one of these categories, there are four specific drivers. So you've got economic drivers, 
risk quality drivers and supply chain drivers. So you've got total, a total of 12 different factors that are being considered. And there's a whole lot of data that um, is available that gets crunched together uh, with various algorithms to come up with an overall score for each country. So if I position this another way, it's to me, it's a great conversation starter. Uh, it's an innovative way of getting companies, you know, and again, it's all about getting messaging to the C-suite and getting them thinking about risk in a different way. And we've had some great success with it. You know, we've had clients that have actually taken this framework and built it into their risk management frameworks where they look at doing business with a particular supplier. Now they're thinking about, well, what country is that supplier located in? How does that country rank uh, within the resilience index? What are the factors that we need to be concerned about by doing business there? So it, it's become a key input into some of their risk management frameworks. And again, it's just, it's, it's getting that conversation started about, you know, resilience and especially, you know, we're kind of come at it from a property related standpoint, but, but getting the conversation, you know, towards how do we consider resilience within the broader context of the business decisions that we make on a regular basis. Well, that's really great because we've, we, I think we certainly saw during the, uh, the this past year with the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, some significant supply chain issues and, and folks just not fully understanding the complexity of the supply chain and also where the, uh, where the potential hiccups could come. And, uh, that's great that you've done that because I think people, I think a lot of organizations are going to be looking at both potentially diversifying uh, their supply sources and, and looking at the supply chain, looking at where they're even where their facilities are are located from a risk perspective, uh, and that's that's going to be really helpful. I, I remember uh, I was in Mexico City. You'll appreciate this it being a property story. Uh, doing work with a major company in the oil and gas sector, and they actually had. Uh, very smart about risk. They looked at Mexico City, which you may know is sort of half of it's ready to, to half it's built on an old lake bed, so it's not particularly stable. And so it's very susceptible to earthquakes. And they had gone through and made sure that everyone, not only was every one of their offices uh, in the green zone that was less likely to be affected, but that also anywhere that was approved for their folks to live. Uh, their, their expats to live. The locals could live, uh, obviously had freedom to live where they wanted to, but anybody who was coming in country and it was going to be uh, taking up housing also had to be there. So it was sort of very much thinking about what the risk is beyond uh, sort of the obvious layer. So um, that's like a really interesting report and, and thank you guys for doing it. Now, many of the people who listen to our podcast are in emergency management so i mentioned earlier they're in the public sector what do you think that your member clients could, could learn from folks who do emergency management and crisis response for a living and then conversely what do you think the emergency managers can learn from talking to some of the uh, the, the uh, risk savvy clients that you have well you know like you mentioned earlier i don't think there is enough collaboration between the public and private sector uh, nor do I think is there enough collaboration between um, uh, individual companies. I just think the local community needs to be talking more about the risks uh, that, that their area faces. And a lot of those risks, you know, a lot of them are natural hazards. Uh, such, let's just take flood. That's a really good and easy example. And there are lots of great flood maps. And that's usually a risk 
that can be easily understood. There's no reason not to understand flood risk. Uh, but what about man-made risks? You know, when you have a facility and <clears throat> you're unknowingly, you are, you know, two doors down from a facility that's, uh, you know, using ammonium nitrate uh, in some way, shape or form, you know, or there is some kind of hazardous process that's going on that increases the threat level. How much is the local community aware of those things? How much are local officials aware of those things? They should be, you know, they should certainly be on top of it. But I think the more dialogue and the more conversations that can occur uh, within the local community, the more that those things can be identified and understood because chances are, you know, a few people may know about certain things, but a lot of other people don't. So the more interplay that you can have, uh, the better the, the better the understanding can be and the better that local communities uh, can manage and respond to those types of events. Yeah, it sounds like there's really opportunity for some win-win outcomes with, with better connectivity. And, and as you say, I think there's um, organizations may hesitate to do that because they, the first thing they think of is, well, A, it's either competitive things they don't want to give, they don't want to share, or what the consumer packaged goods company faces is irrelevant to the auto manufacturer. Uh, but realistically, things like floods and fires and other, and, and, numerous other risks actually don't respect industry boundaries and don't relate to any competitive information. So you probably could discuss quite a bit in a, in a useful way that would, would better inform everybody uh, and make the community better prepared. So yeah. you've given and me I'm, an idea for a future, a future NPLI project. Outstanding. Well, I'm glad I could help in that regard, <laughs> at least, because I do, I do so, believe that there's, there is a, a, a lot of progress can be made in that area. I think it is a big blind spot for, for most uh, organizations that, that are undertaking these efforts. Oh, watch out. We may be giving you a call. We put that project together. So uh, sounds good. <laughs> Happy to so, help. So, um, you know, speaking of natural hazards, you know, climate change seems to be the, the mega threat that's not going away. And we've, uh, people seem to be taking it more seriously now. And the science that I've read consistently indicates that you know, climate-related impacts are only getting worse, they're coming faster. How do we put this massive complex risk into terms that can help leaders, you say in the C-suite or in the mayor's office, the governor's office, to really get their organizations and communities to prepare, to actually do what they need to do to get ready? You know, again, it, it comes down to understanding how those climate risks impact your business, your organization, your community, you've got to take these large macro risks and somehow boil them down to how does this, how does this affect us? And it gets back to understanding those business drivers, understanding where your facilities are located, where your suppliers and customers are located. And you just have to go through that process of understanding, you know, what are the threats, you know, how much can sea level rise if you've got coastal locations or you've got, key suppliers at coastal locations. You know, what is the threat of sea level rise and what's expected and, you know, how much are our flood maps changing? How is construction, you know, in a certain area uh, causing, you know, more concrete being poured that is potentially changing uh, the flood picture in a certain area. So you, you've just got to understand how are we, how are we specifically impacted? And, and then again, uh, not to beat a, not to beat the horse here too much, but it goes back to quantifying that risk too and telling a compelling story with it. Um, so, you know, the, the normal risk management process is, you know, you identify the risk and you quantify it and then you figure out what your management options are. 
uh, that process still holds through. You still have to go through the fundamentals of that uh, to, be, to be able to make good decisions, to be able to prepare for events that uh, are only increasing in frequency and are, and are occurring. Now, the other part of that, too, is getting back to you know, human nature kind of has a mindset of, you know, well, it won't happen to us. And you've, right. you've got to figure out how to combat that somehow. Yeah, that, that is the tricky one. And we've actually got a, a team working on some of that right now, some of our executive participants, because, and I, one of my favorite quotes comes from a, uh, was an emergency management official out in King, uh, King County out in, in Washington state. And he said, this is the four, the four stages of denial were, it won't happen. If it does happen, it won't happen here. And if it does happen here, it won't be that bad. And if it does happen here and it's that bad, there wasn't anything I could have done about it anyway which is a, you know, it's a massive rationalization of not for not tackling these big things. And as we see sea level rise, uh, intense weather events causing flooding and other, other uh, outcomes of so the wildfires that have been ravaging the West as well as Australia and other parts around the world. Uh, we do, I think, really have to come to the understanding that yes, it can happen here. It can be that bad. And, and yes, there are things we can do to get ready that, uh, and to mitigate some of that risk, prevent some of the risk that, uh, they can have a real impact and they don't mean uh, they're not all expensive. They don't, not all uh, enormous in terms of an undertaking, but you just got to understand what you're facing and do something about it. You know, and another thing to consider within that framework is if it happened once, that doesn't mean it can't happen again. Yeah. The hundred year flood doesn't mean it happens once every hundred years. And I think that's uh, and there's a leadership challenge, right? To get leaders to be able to communicate this. I think the a big, uh, an important point you just mentioned is being able to tell a good story. It's not just the data. It's not just the quantitative part, part is good to understand it all. But when you tell the story, you've got to tell it in a compelling way that it, that it resonates with people and they can, they can see what they, both what they face and also what they can do about it. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of power in numbers, you know, and if you really want to make organizational change, you've got to get, you've got to present it in a way that the, the, the folks at the top, uh, you've got to present it in a way that res that resonates with how they think. And that's, you, that's, that's a financial language. You've got to hit them in terms of what's the impact to EBITDA? What's the impact to the valuation of our business? What's the impact to our stock price? What's the impact to our market share? You know, when you can start translating things into those types of terms, that's when the, the, the needle can start moving and, and you can start really making progress with, with creating a more resilient organization. So as you look forward into this new year and then and beyond, what are two or three significant risks on your radar that you don't think are getting enough attention and what should we be doing about them? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer because there's a lot of things on the radar right now. You know, uh, I think it's more, I'm going to come at this question a little differently. Um, okay. Probably not exactly the way you asked it, but, you know, I guess my biggest question is, the things that are on the radar, why are they still on the radar? Why aren't we making more progress in some of these areas? You know, we still deal with clients that, that don't fully understand their natural catastrophe exposures. They still continue to uh, put facilities in places that have a, a high probability of, of something bad happening. Uh, they don't fully understand the risks within their supply chain. And and certainly, you know, there's a whole lot that's been discussed about supply chain fragility. There's a lot of information that's out there. We've, there's a lot of stories, especially in the last year with, with uh, the COVID situation and, and the impact that that's had. But, but yet there are still 
blind spots that are out there. There still are companies that haven't fully invested in figuring out how do we make our supply chain more robust. Certainly a lot of progress has been made, but there's still more progress to be made. And, and you know, it comes down to just what we talked about. I think it's, first of all, it's, it's the risk of short-term thinking. I don't think that gets considered enough. Companies tend to have a focus on what's pressing. Usually that's next quarter's earnings release. And that a lot of them don't look much further than that. And you've got to have a long-term view of things. You, know, you just can't continue to focus in what's best for us right now or what's best for us in the next six months. You got to take a longer term view of things. And the companies that that do a really good job of that, those are the ones that have staying power. Those are the ones that last a really, really long time. And to kind of go alongside with that, again, it's that human nature uh, issue of being overly optimistic, you know, having that it won't happen to us type thinking or kind of more specifically worst case scenarios or low probability events, it's not gonna happen. So we don't need to worry about that. And yet, and, they, and so as a result, they don't incorporate you know, that type of thinking into their business continuity plans and their resilience efforts. And you just, you can't do that. You, these types of events have happened. They continue to happen. They're happening with more frequency. You've got companies have to broaden their their approach to really consider those worst case scenarios and those low probability events more robustly than what they have been. So I will share back one of the things that one of the tools we've used that I, I think has, that gets at some of this, because I said, you talk a lot about going in at the C-suite and you absolutely have to get people at that level to understand what's going on. And then a bit by accident, I'm often one of these pre COVID times on the road doing crisis leadership seminars and in getting through the exercises, one of the things we will ask people, and I'm often doing this with sort of regional managers, country managers to the a level or two below the sea level. And as we're going to build the scenarios and want to make them realistic. We ask people, what keeps you awake at night? Uh, and if they're honest, the answers they give you can be astounding. And I know one large company I worked with actually <clears throat> changed some parts of their, their corporate risk register uh, based on the feedback they were getting from those frontline people. And they're like, oh, we didn't think about that one. Oh, maybe we should look into this other one. Um, and so get, I think every, getting everyone a bit risk attuned throughout the organization and having channels by which that can flow up as well as the what the folks at the top are seeing can flow down uh, can make people more aware of it. And I think, you know, to your point, expose them to the dangers of thinking too short term and not thinking really at a holistic view of, you know, what is going to ha- what is going to happen if the, if the bad the bad news does come, uh, the crisis does hit. Because um, again, there's things you could often do to mitigate that are not necessarily costly or difficult. You just have to think of them at the time. Um, so, you and that's uh, a that's a that's a great point, by the way. And I because I, I love that question. What keeps you up at night? You know that. I mean, we when we do uh, evaluations for our clients, that's that's usually the question that we close on. And usually that's where you get the most interesting information. That's where through all of the the planning that you do and all of the the dozens of questions you might ask, you might not get to that that nugget that you you really want to highlight uh, that might just open up everything to really understanding risk in the the correct way. So I hope if there's one takeaway for your audience, that's, that's a really good one is provide 
opportunities for those types of questions and and really make sure that that you're you're really getting all getting the most information from your employees create, creating opportunities for that type of feedback absolutely having those open mm-hmm. conversations because i think mm-hmm. the people who are sleeping best at night are the ones who actually understand their risk and therefore have taken appropriate steps to mitigate it as best they can and that way, if the, the phone may still ring at three o'clock in the morning, but you're probably not going to be quite as panicked. And it probably won't ring, it, ring at three o'clock in the morning quite as often because you've already anticipated what might go wrong and taken appropriate steps. You know, in the really successful companies, not only are they resilient and they can respond to crises, but they end up winning in the long run. They end up coming out better than their competitors. If, if you have an industry that's impacted but you've got some companies are far more resilient and can withstand uh, the impact of, of what's happened more than others. It, you know, resilience can become a competitive advantage. You can increase company valuations by being more resilient. And uh, that has been proven multiple times over the years. And I think if, if nothing else, it makes you think harder about the business and think about it in different ways, which gives you all kinds of potential insights uh, that can have, uh, have commercial value or in the case of a, if you're a public sector organization, can help you create greater value for your community. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us today. I think I, I've walked away with a more uh, nuanced view of risk, and I hope our listeners have as well. Uh, so thank you for being part of Leader, uh, Leader ReadyCast. And to all of our listeners out there, I want you to stay safe, be ready to lead when the moment calls. And until next time, you're it. Thank you for listening to Leader ReadyCast, the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government's Center for Public Leadership. You can find more about our work as well as our online classes and other programs at our website, npli.sph.harvard.edu. You can follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. You can find short videos in our content on YouTube. Search for at Harvard NPLI. And you can follow us on LinkedIn. Look for our company page, National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, where we post frequently. Again, thank you for listening. Please pass this podcast along. We look forward to being with you again soon.